The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage. Man, we're really glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we have been in a series for quite some time now, going back into November uh, on the book of Genesis. Uh, today we actually get into chapter 2 of Genesis, which I'm very excited about. Uh, you know, I'm speaking today on rest. We're going to get into Genesis chapter 2 where we see this picture of God resting, and we're going to talk about what does rest look like in our lives. And it happened on a week where rest was so unbelievably difficult for me to come by. I have in-laws in town this week, which was great. I love my in-laws, but you know, it's airports, it's driving around, it's showing them the sights. And then in the middle of all that, I evidently walked into a, a forest of poison oak, and I got poison oak everywhere, and I was in urgent care. Uh, it's everything in my being to not scratch myself to death in front of you. I told someone earlier I'm going to buy stock in cal- calamine lotion because it's like crazy. And then uh, in the middle of all this, my wife and my family was out on the coast when a car broke down. So I had to hop out of work, take a rental car, drive to Brookings, pick up my family, drive them back. In all of this madness, I had to drop off my in-laws at the airport this morning at 3.45 and I forgot to get donuts. I'm trying to talk about having a non-anxious presence, about this invitation God has given us into a non-hurried life, and yet I've been living sort of the antithesis of that this week. But all that sets us up for our text. I would encourage you today to open up to Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see this image of our God resting on the seventh day after six days of creation. We're going to make some observations on the activity of God in those three verses, and then we're going to look at how that might inform the way we think about rest in our own lives. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Pray with me. Father, open our hearts and our minds to hear these words. God, to to consider these words and the implication they have on our life today, the bearing these words have on us. God, may we have ears to hear, a heart to respond in obedience. God, meet us in this place. Change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was uh, young and going to college, uh, I had a job one summer in Montana uh, working in a casino. Uh, I was a cashier, bartender, bouncer in one of these little truck stop casinos you have in Montana. And I remember one night I was working in the cashier's booth. And, you know, in Montana at that time, they had these Makino machines and these poker machines. And they would only take $5 bills or $1 bills. The biggest jackpot was $500. So all night long, I'm just handing out. People would come up with a 20. I'd give them fives or ones so they could play the machine. And one night I got to work, there was this lady there, a really pretty lady, uh, you know, very well put together, sweet, uh, laughing, and she would come up with a $100 bill, and I would give her a bunch of fives, and she'd go back to the machine. An hour later, she'd come up with another $100 bill, I'd give her a bunch of fives. Pretty soon, I'm seeing her at the cash machine, maybe a couple thousand dollars later, it's five in the morning, and I see her frantically searching in the bottom of her purse for chains, change. I see panic in her eyes, I see terror, horror. Um, shame, all of it. And I'm watching her just sit at the machine, putting her last quarters in, running her fingers through her hair, realizing she just made a horrible, horrible mistake. She's the only one left in the, in the, in the casino. I'm just there watching her. My heart's breaking for her. I see a man come in. He's looking frantic. He's looking around and he sees her and I hear him go over to her and he's like, Teresa, not again. 
This is our rent money. How are we going to feed the kids? And I hear, and she's sobbing. I see him grab her, kind of, kind of walk her out of the casino. And my heart just broke at watching that story unfold. Dollar by dollar, hour by hour, she gave away everything. She had nothing left for what mattered. It was so sad. Do you ever get that sinking suspicion that you're investing in the wrong things? Do you ever get that sinking suspicion that you are investing your precious resources into a system that is stacked against you? That one day you're going to lift up your head from life and you're going to realize that you've squandered the resources, that you've been putting $1 bills and $5 bills a nickel at a time, a penny at a time, a dollar at a time, uh, one after another, year after year, month after month, into the wrong thing. And one day you're going to realize you're at the end of the road and it was the wrong road. It's a dead end. You've been investing in the wrong things. You're bankrupt. You're tired. You're worn out. We only have so much to invest. We only have so much time. We only have so much treasure. We only have so much talent. And when I remember when I turned 40, I remember thinking to myself, like before 40, I remember thinking, I want to do all the things. There's so much I wanted to do with my life. I wanted, I had all these goals and these desires and these ambitions. And when I turned 40, I realized that life has a clock on it and I only have so much time and so much resource and so much intellect and so much capital to invest. I began to ask, instead of saying, I want to do all the things, I started to think, I need to start, am I doing the right things? There comes a point in our life you have to start asking the question, am I investing in the right things? Am I doing the right stuff with my time? Or am I buying into a lie? Life happens at such a pace, I I think oftentimes we don't pause and consider. We we drink deeply of the cultural Kool-Aid of busyness and, and hectic life, and we don't pause long enough to assess the implications of our lifestyle. And the problem is that in our culture, we kind of uphold busyness as a badge of honor. We talk to someone we haven't seen in a while in the store, and what's the question we ask? Been busy lately? Oh yeah, so busy, so busy. Yeah, busy. And we brag about it. We say things like, I have all the time I, I, I need when I'm, when I'm dead. We, we puff up our chests and we make you know, claims and outlandish claims about all that we're doing. We, we, we get back a minute or two because of the advancement of technology. Things are more efficient now, but we fill it up immediately. Like, like my dog, I could have a 40-foot leash, and my dog would be at the end of a 40-foot leash. It doesn't matter how long the leash is. I'm always going to be at the end of it. We tend to occupy every spare minute we have. There's this hilarious research that was done back in the 60s that said that they believed because of technological advancement, we would have way more time on our hands than we needed today. They thought by 1985, like, the average person was going to work 28 weeks a year, 22 hours a week or something like that. Can you imagine? But what do we do? We get back a minute. What do we do with that minute? We fill it up with stuff. I read this week that logging long hours and complaining about not having time in the day is considered a status symbol and a sign of success. And so we bow at the altar of busyness to the detriment of our physical lives, our emotional lives, our relational lives, our family lives, our spiritual lives. And then if you're like me, I've had a tendency in my life to run at a breakneck pace, and then I hit like that point where I can't go anymore, and then I collapse into sloth. Or I'm just a lump on a couch binge-watching Netflix, wasting more life. I'm not wasting life with over-busyness. I'm wasting life with sloth. feel guilty if we actually do take time to get rest. We feel like we're wasting time. We've lost our way. I read an author this week. Listen to what he says. Many of us have lost our way spiritually. Between the demands of work and family, our lives fall somewhere between full and overflowing. We multitask so much that we're unaware we are doing three things at once. We admire people who are able to accomplish so much in so little time. They are our role models. At the same time, many of us use our overscheduled, tensed, addicted to hurry, frantic, preoccupied, fatigued lifestyle, and we're starved for time, cramming as much as possible into our smartphones, to-do lists, and daily schedules. 
We battle life to make the best use of every spare minute that we have. Yet, nothing changes. Our overproductivity has become counterproductive. We end our days exhausted from work and raising children and going to school and getting stuff done. And then in our free time on weekends, it becomes filled with more demands in an already overburdened life. Yet we cannot stop. And if we are busy, we feel guilty that we are wasting time and we're not productive. In all of our productivity, we have become counterproductive. Does that identify with you? It identifies with me. I heard someone ask a question this week. When is the last time you ate just to eat? When's the last time you ate and just sat down to enjoy a meal? No smartphone, no agenda, no business meeting, just sitting down and enjoying the blessing of a good meal. And then we come to church, and we hear all about the stuff that we need to be doing for Jesus, and it adds to our already overburdened lives, especially if we have a tendency to view the Christian life as a checklist list of items that need to be accomplished. And the end result is all of this is that we, we, we are like people on a treadmill that's stuck at 20 miles an hour. We're running so fast, and we can't stop because it's going to create catastrophe. We're balancing balls in the air, spinning plates. We've developed a lifestyle that has literally caged us, and nothing can be done to our satisfaction. We have this overwhelming sense if we, if we stop for one moment, our whole lives are going to come crashing down. And when we finally do crack, when we can take it no more, we slink into slothfulness. The end result is that our work is not meaningful and our rest is not meaningful. We know it. We sense it. We feel it. We know something's wrong. Work doesn't satisfy like it once did. I can't seem to rest even when I have time off. Something's wrong. And yet, when we look at Genesis, we see in the first pages of Scripture that we're made for work and that we're made for rest. The issue of work and rest are at the very heart of what it means to be human. And so God speaks to us today in our text about this. Can you imagine a life where work has divine meaning? Can you imagine a life where you have rest at the deepest levels of your soul? Last week, if you were here, we looked at the very end of Genesis chapter 1, and, and we learned that we're all called to work. God created us for work. Work is a part of life, and it was a part of our life and our design before sin entered the world and messed everything up. Uh, part of God's original design for humankind is that we work. In fact, our work is what God uses to expand his glory uh, to the ends of the earth. As image bearers of God, we go and bear his image in the work that we do. We learned last Sunday that our vocation is the very thing by which we fill the earth and give glory to God. That applies to engineers and teachers and accountants and lawyers and truck drivers and psychologists and doctors and laborers, stay-at-home parents and everything else. Our work is ordained by God. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see God modeling for us work. Six days of work. And now as we get into Genesis chapter 2, we see a radical shift as God suddenly rests. Work and rest. Look with me again at Genesis 2, verses 1 through 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. In the first pages of Scripture, we see work and we see rest. God at work and we see God at rest. And as image bearers of this God, we are to also be people who work and people who rest. Notice the language in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the, the earth. We see God working. And then, kind of capping that off in Genesis 
chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we see that the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them, and God rested. We see God working and we see God resting, sandwiching the days of creation. And as we look at day seven, it's clearly different than the other six days that we've already studied. Day seven's got some things that they're kind of missing that were in the other six days. The other six days began with God speaking words. But the seventh day, God does not begin it by saying, the scriptures don't begin it by, by God saying anything. The other days speak of God's creative work, but in day seven, God doesn't do any creative work. The other six days of creation are marked by the beginning and the end of the day. The language is that there was evening and there was morning, but we don't see that in day seven. It seems as if day seven doesn't end. There's an eternal nature to this rest that God has modeled for us. The seventh day is different not in just what's not mentioned. There's also something that's added to day seven that's not added to any of the other days. It says that God set this day aside. He, he, he made it holy. He blessed it and made it holy. The seventh day is to be a sacred day, a set-apart day, a hallowed day. And so as we walk through our text, just notice the, the three verbs that we see in our text today. Let's look at the first verb. It's finished in verses one and two. We see this word twice. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. If you want to pay attention or underline the word finished, feel free. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. As we look at the model of God in the seventh day, on the seventh day, God finished his work. It's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. On the seventh day, God finished his work. It's a radical statement, God ceasing working. As I did some research for the message this week, I, I learned that there are Eastern mythological accounts of creation, and the way in which an ancient Near Eastern world would have viewed God, the idea of a God that works would have been offensive, it would have been radical. That's not only a, a, an Eastern idea, it's also a Western idea. In Western thought, the same concept was believed that work is a curse, it's for the menial, it's not for the gods, and yet when we look at Genesis, we see God upholding work and God doing work himself. I, I listened to a sermon this week by by Timothy Keller, in which he says Genesis is almost deliberately going in the teeth of what both Western and Eastern cultures and everybody else thought about work. Genesis is saying that work uh, matters, that it's something that God does, it's something good. It's a radical concept that stacks up against many worldviews. In fact, if you skip ahead, next week Pastor Mitch is going to take us through kind of the, the parenthetical description of the, of the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. But in, in, in Genesis 2 verse 7, we see this picture of God working as he's forming Adam. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the image of God working. God, creator God, holy, infinite, sovereign, beautiful, righteous God has his hands in soil as he's forming Adam from the dust of the ground. Keller says that Genesis shows us a God with dirt under his fingernails, God digging a ditch in order to create us. God plants a garden. God has his hands dirty in the garden, and then God puts humankind in the garden. And he says, now you be a gardener. It seems as if Genesis goes out of its way to tell us that work is good. And we can't rightly understand rest unless we rightly understand work. Work is put into the middle of paradise. It's a part of paradise. Work is not a punishment. Creation affirms and elevates the role of work. Keller goes on to say, no matter how high and lofty your position in society is today, your ancestor was a groundskeeper. I love that. God with dirt under his fingernails. We learned last week that our, our vocation, our work, is the very means through which we image God as a part of the cultural mandate to the ends of the earth. We, we, are, to, we are to flourish to the ends of the earth for the, for the glory of God. We talked about the cultural mandate 
and about how we are affirmed in our vocations, our work, is how we then go to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. And as I talked about that last week, I can imagine we kind of stayed up in the 30,000 foot view. There might have been some of you here who are saying, yeah, but you don't know my job. I get it, Paul. Like in a perfect idealized world, we all are going to approach our work, whether I'm a CEO or, I, or I'm a laborer or I'm somewhere in between. I get that we're supposed to approach our work as a way to, to image God to the world around us, but I hate my job. I hate my work. You don't know the, the ungodly leadership I labor under day in and day out. You don't know how, how, how the pressures of my job are slowly killing me. You don't know the heavy load that I, sh- I, I shoulder. I mean, in a perfect world, we'd all have a deep sense of purpose in our work, but I recognize that's not the reality. I talk to you. I know how work is difficult, and sometimes you just don't, you don't want to go anymore. It's hard. You, you've ceased to find any sort of value in the work that you do. So, so what does the Bible have to say about this imperfect reality? I mean, God, certainly God would, would know that we were going to live and work in places that aren't, you know, existentially satisfying. Certainly God knew that there was going to be some of us who just need to keep the wolf off the door. We just need to pay the bills. We just got to find something to do to make a few pennies so that we can survive till next week. What does the Bible say to us that live in that place? Well, it offers us a rhythm that will rightly orient our hearts, that will correct our vision, that will restore our sanity. The Bible offers us a rhythm of rest. Our work is not going to make sense. It's going to be meaningless until we have a meaningful understanding of rest, and vice versa. So God modeled for us rest. Look at verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Twice we see the words rested in those two verses. Underline them, highlight them. God finishes work and then he rested. Here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. The second verb that we see. We see God resting. On the seventh day, God rested from his work. On the seventh day, God finished his work and then we see on the seventh day, God rested from his work. We read twice the word rested here. That's simply just, it's a word that includes uh, ideas other than simply being tired. Uh, it, it means to cease or to stop. God was just ceasing from his labor. God hadn't grown weary. He hadn't grown tired. He's God. The, the Bible affirms that he's almighty, that he's all-powerful. The Bible affirms that our God never grows weary. Listen to what Isaiah says, Isaiah forty twenty eight about God. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, neither faints nor is weary. But in our text, he chose to rest. Why do you suppose God chose to rest? He didn't need to rest. Why do you suppose he chose to rest? It certainly wasn't due to him being tired, but he was completely finished with his creative work. He was finished. It was complete. It was exactly as he wanted it to be. In his eternal divine wisdom, he had fashioned a complete creation. I mean, I was talking to Jeremy about that earlier this week. I mean, could have God continued to create? Sure. He could have mixed a, you know, a rhinoceros and an ostrich if he wanted to. He could have given us wings. He could have done other interesting things with creation. But God was done. His masterful creation was finished. And we watch in awe as he does it. As we read through the pages of Genesis chapter 1, we watch in awe as God forms the earth with light and land and water and plant life and, and sky and sun and moon and stars. 
with bated anticipation, we watch in days four, five, and six as God fills the earth. He, he fills it with fish and fowl, whales and birds, hummingbirds and condors and ostriches and plankton and paddlefish and blue whales. And he, we see land animals scurrying across the earth, little ones and big ones, from a mouse to a woolly mammoth, created in the very, the very image of God is the human beings that then come as the crown jewel of all creation. The very end, the last thing he does is he fashions and forms humankind to reflect his image. And then after God is done putting his finishing touches on creation, he rests. And he looks at everything that he saw, and he declares that it's very good. And then day seven is just wholly different. God doesn't speak. God doesn't work. He rests. So on the seventh day, God finishes work. God rests from his work. And the third verb we see is blessed. Third thing I'd encourage you to write down, on the seventh day, God blessed his work. Look at what it says in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God blessed his work. God is enjoying his work. He's reveling in the completeness of his creation. And he sets this day aside, the seventh day aside. He's not out of ideas like we said earlier. He just chose to rest. Now he's letting his work sink in, this very good work of creation. And as we were meeting as a pastoral staff earlier this week and talking about this text, it was pointed out that, that Adam created at the end of day six, his first real experience is to rest. God doesn't create Adam and say, get to work. God creates Adam and says, now revel in the beautiful things that I have created. Adam's first experience is to enter into day seven and experience the rest of God. God is saying to Adam, rest with me. Look at the finished work of my divine hand. Look at the beauty. Look at the very good things I have done, Adam, and revel in them. Soon enough, you'll have work to do, but today, delight, worship, rest. And in so doing, when you have meaningful rest, your work will then be meaningful. When we meaningfully orient our rest in Creator God, then the work that we put our hands to is rightly informed. The seventh day of rest is the basis that the Bible points back to for the Sabbath command. We first read the word Sabbath in the book of Exodus. God's instructing the people of Israel concerning uh, the gathering of manna. They're wandering in the desert. They've been delivered from the oppressive hand of Egypt. God is causing manna to fall down to feed the people of Israel. And God says to them that they should gather enough of the manna on day six so they don't have to gather on day seven. And in Exodus 16, verses 22 and 23, we read that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. The first time we see the word Sabbath is right there in Exodus chapter 16. Even as they were wandering in the desert, God provides for them. And he invites them to begin experiencing his rest. They're not in the promised land, yet they're wandering in the desert. God is meeting their needs. And even as they're wandering in the desert, in the most harsh climate, God is saying, take one day out of every seven days to live as if you were in the promised land. It orients your heart. It fixes your vision. When, when, when you know how to meaningfully rest, it gives meaning to your work. And every seventh day, God invites his people to rest and enjoy the things he created, even in the midst of the wilderness. They're to take and live as if God's ultimate rest has already come. That's this picture we have in seventh-day Sabbath, seventh-day rest. The next mention we see of Sabbath is in the commandments. 
In Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment, God says in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, he says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do, not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the, sojour- or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, God, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here in his commands to the the Israelites who are still in the wilderness, God is pointing back to the rhythms of the creation account. He's saying that their command to rest every seventh day is in line with the pattern God models for us in the creation account. The people of God were given this command, given this rhythm to fall while in the desert, And it points forward to the people of God. When they take a seventh day to rest, it gives them meaningful rest, and it points forward to a day of ultimate rest that awaits all of God's people. And it's not just seventh day rest. If you look at the Old Testament, it's so interesting. There's these seven festivals that are happening, that happen every year annually in the Jewish calendar. Each of those festivals, in a unique way, also points forward to the ultimate rest that is found in God. And you have these rhythms where every seven years slaves are to be freed, and every seven years debts are to be forgiven, and every seven years the land is supposed to be given a year of rest. We see this repeating of seven that's connected to rest in all of the Old Testament scripture. And then you have the ultimate day of rest, the year of Jubilee, seven times seven, every 49 years, there's supposed to be this ultimate day of rest, the Jubilee rest, where everyone who has lost their land or gone in debt is, is restored. And yet, the Israelites eventually get to the promised land, and what happens? They enter into the rest of God, and they forget. They stop worshiping. They stop following God's ways. God throws them into another exile as a way of discipline. And as we listen to the prophets speaking during the rebellion of Israel, after all these years, we hear them speaking about this this future rest that God has for his people, this ultimate jubilee that awaits all of God's people. It's pointing us to Jesus. The prophets talk about one who's going to bring the rest for our souls. And then Jesus comes. And in Luke chapter 4, as he stands up in the city of, of Nazareth, his hometown, on a Sabbath Sunday, he opens up the scroll and he begins to read out of Isaiah 62, and he reads about Jubilee. He reads a, a, a Isaiah prophecy out of Isaiah 62 about, about this ultimate rest, and Jesus points to himself saying, these scriptures have been fulfilled today. Jesus puts himself at the center of the rest that our souls crave. He's talking about the ultimate kind of rest. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord over even the Sabbath. Jesus says the Sabbath was given by God as a blessing to man, not the other way around. This isn't some legalistic demand that's supposed to put more burden upon the backs of his people. This is a blessing from God to lift the burden from his people that we can rest meaningfully, focus our attention on him so that our work then has meaning. Jesus himself is the Lord of Sabbath. True rest is only found in Jesus And there's so much that can be said about Sabbath, about church history, how it became a Sunday thing. We don't have time to get into that today. The larger question for us today is this. And here's where I want us to settle. What does Sabbath rest for Christians? What does it look like for you and for me today, right now, 2021, Medford, Oregon, to find rest for our souls? Last summer, as I was just interviewing and kind of engaging in a relationship with Heritage before I joined staff, you guys did a series called The Easy Yoke. And Pastor Jeremy preached the message on Sabbath. And then we provided a resource to you on how to think about Sabbath. And I just want to read what we wrote in that resource. Kind of gives us a definition of how we think about Sabbath. The meaning of Sabbath has largely been lost in our culture. Instead of a day to delight in God's work in our lives and rest in his care for us, 
The Sabbath has become merely a day off. And we gave you guys a resource. And we said this resource is aimed at helping us to begin forming a vision for why or for what a day of delight might look like in our context. The Sabbath is a 24-hour period during the week that is set aside for restful worship and enjoyment of the life God has given us. It is a weekly God-focused rest and enjoyment for the life God has given us. So when you look at the example of God on the seventh day, when, you, we, when we begin to meditate on the example of God on the seventh day, him finishing his work, him resting from his work, him blessing his work, we get an understanding of how we are to think about rest for ourselves. It's a pattern, if you will, for how when we think about what does a seventh day rest look like for me, we look at God and it informs the way we think about that. I want to have you write down three more things, if you would. What does your seventh day rest look like? Well, number one, cease from your work. Cease from your work. What does it mean to finish your work? Is our work ever done? It said God finished his work. Well, when we, when we seek to rest, we've got to entrust our work to God. We've got to trust that, 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 that God is big enough and the undone work that, that leaves us uh, stressing out, we've we got to just trust it to God. He's invited us to rest. His shoulders are broad enough. In my line of work as a pastor, it's so infrequent that I get to see work finished, that I get to see work completed. I mean, so often in my life as a pastor, I am walking alongside people and walking through situations that rarely have a perfect bow wrapped on the end of them. I, I, don't, get a, I don't get to step back very often and fold my arms and, and revel in a completed work. It seems like everything I do is in process. And so I'll be sitting at my computer on Thursday before I get ready to take off, and there's 140 things that are undone. I have to say, God, are you— are you sovereign over these things or are you not? And sometimes we do really, really hard things. Sometimes we, we sit with people who are grieving or we walk people through really difficult seasons of life and they're not done grieving. Their pain isn't finished. The tears are still flowing, but I got a wife and kids. I got to go home. I got, I got other things I have to do with my time. I'm not God. So I have to say, God, your shoulders are big enough. I'm going to place these burdens at the foot of the cross. I'm going to trust you with them. You care more than I do. Will you, will you please, God, will you please care for these things while I observe this basic command of rest? So we have to cease from our work. We have to set it before God. So do you have a day, a 24-hour day in your life where you honestly take all the burdens of work, no email, no text, no phone calls, no cheating, no lying, no looking at Do you have a day in your life? Can you imagine a day in your life where you didn't have to stress about a single missed you know, a T that's not been crossed or an I that's not been dotted. Can you imagine a 24-hour day where you don't have to stress out about those things? So we have to cease from our work. The second thing we see is we have to rest from work. Your seventh day ha has to be a, a picture of you resting from your work. What does rest look like? I mean, it's to be set apart. It's to be different. God worked for six days, and then he hallowed the seventh day. He made it different. He set it apart. It was a day for sacred use. If I waltz into my seventh day rest like it's any other day, and I don't have any changes of rhythm or any changes of the way I approach the day, it's not going to be any different. It's going to get gobbled up with the same stuff that's gobbled up the other six days. So what would it look like for you to set aside a day that was different, and you knew it was different, and your practices and your rhythms and the way you approached the day was different? Your phones were off. Your TV was off. You enjoyed a meal, you slept in, whatever that may be, resting from your labor. I'm telling you right now, on Sabbath, we are to imitate God by stopping our work. And if you think you could bypass this basic rhythm that God has hardwired into you as a human being, you're sorely mistaken. 
God has a way of helping us find rest. And oftentimes it involves pain. For years, I was just driven, so driven, and I just translated all my fleshly, worldly drivenness into my job in ministry, and I felt like maybe God ordained or sanctified my fleshiness, my desire to be made much of. And I pushed, 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 building my own kingdom, not his kingdom. It's a longer story for another day. And then God gave me, by his blessing, he gave me migraines. And I wasn't going to stop. I wasn't going to slow down. And then God began to afflict me with migraines. And guess what happens when I have a migraine? I get them about once a week. I can't do anything, right? You have to go in the shower. You have to turn off the lights. Your kids can't talk to you. Your wife can't talk to you. They can't touch you. You're nauseous. You're vomiting. And you've got this forced moment of slowdown. If you don't observe Sabbath rest as a regular rhythm of your life, you're going to crash and you're going to burn sickness, depression, injury. God has a way of getting us to stop. Martin Luther one time said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And Jesus modeled regular rest. All throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus withdrawing to quiet places to pray, to meet with the Father. His, his disciples running after him, like Mark chapter 1. Hey, come on, we got stuff to do. No, he's meeting with the Father. He's resting. What might this look like in your life? What might it look like in your life to do something other than what you've done for the other six days a week? I mean, for those of you that work a physical job, Sabbath might mean taking a nap, reading a book, letting your body rest. For those of you that that work in in a cubicle all day at a desk, Sabbath might look like getting outside, breathing in fresh air, going for a bike ride or a hike or a walk in the forest, something avocational. For those of you that work with people all week, Sabbath might be some time alone, some solitude, some silence to journal with the Bible. For those of you that are in isolation throughout the week, Sabbath may mean having a meal with friends and enjoying the richness of Christian community. God offers us an opportunity to reorient our lives through this rhythm. Unless I know how to rest meaningfully, Unless my rest is rooted in the completed work of Christ, I'm never going to have meaningful work. I'm always going to look to my work as a way to build my own kingdom. And I'm never going to orient my work, and I'm never going to rest meaningfully, and I'm never going to work meaningfully. So cease from your work, rest from work. And lastly, our seventh day is a day for us to delight, to delight in the work of God. It's a day for us to look at what God has done and declare with him, it is very good. We look to God's finished work of creation and we delight. We look to Christ's finished work of redemption and we delight. There's a backward-looking aspect to Sabbath. We celebrate God, the Creator. There's a forward-looking aspect to Sabbath. We celebrate Christ, the Redeemer. We look at what God has done. We look at what He's doing. We look at what He has yet to do. And with God, we declare this is very good. We lift our eyes, our hearts, our minds. Our Sabbath day is a day to delight in God to worship him, to remember his faithfulness in our lives, to tell our our story over and over again about how he met us in the darkness. He pulled us from the the miry clay. He he set us up on the rock. He he breathed the breath of life into us. He opened our eyes to the truth of who he is. He saved us from our sins. We journal about the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God. We we look with hopefulness at the day when all things are going to be made new. We delight in God. I tell you what, there's a lot of, we always want to know what is the silver bullet in life. What's the, like, what's the, what's this magic pill? What's the silver bullet? What's the one thing I can do? To, honestly, I don't think there's any silver bullet in, in I think that's just a, a fallacy to get, get us to buy magazines and subscriptions. But honestly, I think the closest thing I've experienced in my life to a silver bullet, to spiritual vitality, is a, is a white hot commitment to Sabbath rest. And you were talking earlier, Brent, about marriage, right? You're, you're talking about fighting for your marriage. My wife and I have discovered that when we Sabbath together, It's like a date night. It's her and I worshiping God together. It's resting in the Lord together. It's spending a day together. It's worked wonders for our marriage. 
It's a set-apart day. It's different. Genesis 2 declares that the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work, and it was done. I mean, Genesis 2, we hear the shouts of God over creation saying it is finished. But you know what? That phrase, it is finished, is repeated also in the New Testament, right? In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, chapter 19, knowing that everything was now finished, Jesus says, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The God of redemption shouts, it is finished, just like the God of creation shouts, it is finished. Our understanding of rest looks at the finished work of God the Creator and the finished work of Christ the Redeemer, and we recognize that our rest is rooted in those things. The work of creation is finished. The work of redemption is finished. The compulsive, works-based, building-our-own-kingdom mindset that causes us to lose meaning in our work and meaning in our rest has been dealt with. Creation is finished. God's done all the work. Redemption is finished. Christ has done all the work. He just invites us to participate in what he's doing. Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 4.9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has endured God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now listen, until you believe that Jesus' work on the cross is enough, until you come to a deep and abiding trust and believe that the approval your heart needs is found in God, and the only one you need to impress is God, until you come to that, it's going it's to mess with the way you approach your work and you approach your rest. You'll never have meaningful work until you experience meaningful rest. You'll never have meaningful rest until you experience meaningful work. Why do we work? Why do you work? Why do you get out of bed? Why do you post on social media? Why do you go to work? Why do you do the things you do every single day? So often we approach our work as a way to kind of justify our existence. Sure, we need money, but we're always looking for significance in these, 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 these ways, our vocation, and the way people view us in our, in our reputations, in the way we are perceived by the world around us. But there's such a problem in that. If my, if my worth, if my significance, if my value is rooted into the things that I do, what, happen, what happens if something goes wrong with the things I do? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my career? What if I have an injury? What if I can't do the things I once did that gave me value and meaning? We lose our sense of self. We lose our identity. We lose meaning. What's the Bible tell us about this? The Bible tells us that his finished work is enough. All the work has been done. The work of redemption is complete. Jesus said it's finished. You'll never have meaningful work until you can experience meaningful rest, and you'll never experience meaningful rest until you experience meaningful work. And we won't rest until we view work the right way. And when we learn that our work is not a means of finding worth, when we learn that our work is not a way of finding identity or meaning or significance, when we come to realize that our work is an offering to our God who has already told us our worth, who has already secured our identity, who has already informed us of our meaning, who has already died for us to reveal our significance, until we come to that realization, we're going to create meaning and work that's never going to satisfy. And we're never going to find meaningful rest. Now listen, God has invited you to experience rest in Him. Rest in His creative work. Rest in His redemptive work. How can you know if your work is meaningful? How can you know that you've really found rest for your soul? Well, do you take a day off? Simple, simple test. How do you know if your work is meaningful? How do you know if your rest is meaningful? Well, if you're not willing to take a day off, if you're not willing to set a day apart, if you're not willing to take physical rest, it proves that you don't have spiritual rest. 
If you're working all the time, what are you trying to prove? It's finished. If you're working all the time, whose kingdom are you building? It's finished. Today, in the midst of all, we hear the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us to learn from him. He invites us to learn from his unhurried way. We're invited to learn the unforced rhythms of grace, to walk as Jesus walked, this non-anxious presence, this unhurried life yielded to the will of the Father in a world deaf to his voice. May the finished work of God in creation make your work meaningful for his glory, and may the finished work of Christ in redemption make your rest meaningful for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this account in Genesis. God, thank you that you are a God who has finished the works of creation. You're a God who has finished the works of redemption. You're a God who has made it possible for us to cease, for us to rest, and for us to delight. So God, I just pray that for your people. God, I pray for those of us that are gathered here today that, God, especially those of us that are caught up in the whirlwind of this life, God, this this treadmill of life, this 20-mile-an-hour treadmill that, that never stops, and we just don't know how to get off. We don't know how to rest. God, I'm mindful today for those of us that have just collapsed and we've defaulted into a life of, of sloth where we, where we just collapse in a pile on the sofa and don't do anything meaningful. God, would you just inform our rest? Would you inform our work? God, help us to see you in it. Help us to understand that our work only has meaning when we recognize we're working for your glory. God, help us to understand that our rest is only meaningful when we rest in your finished, completed work. Thank you, Lord. Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.